podcast with Alan and Chad. This podcast was developed with teachers in mind. We're glad to have you joining us on the podcast where we will dive into everything related to teaching, learning, and technology integration. Our goal is to inspire passion in teachers by discussing strategies and activities that have been successful in the classroom, along with ways to integrate technology for maximum student engagement. In each episode, we want to look at things teachers are doing that are working, detailing teaching strategies and technology integration ideas. Also, special guests will join us to share their own strategies that have been successful with their learners. So we are back for another episode of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad. And today's discussion is going to focus on classroom discussion. Well, sounds easy enough. I think everybody talks all the time. Kids are always talking in class. Definitely no shortage of discussion going on. (laughs) No, not at all. Uh, But really what we want to focus on is intentional discussion, getting kids to engage in content, understanding, uh, you know, what the content is, developing their own thoughts, articulating those thoughts, using the terminology from class. Uh, In our district, we, you know, our focus has been disciplinary literacy, and really that kind of is one way to encompass that thought or conceptual framework of what DL is uh, through discussion. Yeah, yeah, when you talk about disciplinary literacy, trying to get kids to have a conversation in the way that they're articulating and putting together a good argument for their thought and what they want to, the point that they want to make, but then also a big part of disciplinary literacy, being able to use terminology that fits in that subject. So the type of things that you might talk about in math is going to be a lot different than maybe the terminology that you need to be able to use to get through a science lab, a biology lab, for example, or a chemistry lab. So that's really the basis of, of disciplinary literacy is being able to speak like an expert in that subject area. Yeah, and, and to think like one, you know, to be able to, to have a discussion, you have to have thought about what you're saying. And it has to be, be meaningful in regards to what the content is. Uh, you know, we talk about it, it really kind of engages that higher level uh, of exploration and understanding of a content in order to articulate thought or, or to de- develop a free thinking or independent thinking. And if I'm talking about it or teaching somebody something, it usually shows that I have a deeper understanding than just that basic level of recall or remember. Yeah, I mean, I, as you're talking about that deeper level, it makes me think a little bit about if you had, for example, a group of math teachers having a conversation about math, mm-hmm. for a student to have enough knowledge to join the conversation on an equal level you've got to have a pretty good understanding of the terminology, the concepts that they're talking about, where you're not just joining the conversation in a level of asking questions. So really to have those type of discussions, you do have to have a deeper understanding to be able to have those expert level discussions. Yeah. Yeah. And then add that to where you can have student to student conversation about that content. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're really raising the level or expectation of that classroom. Because then, like you said, if they can be on the level with what the teacher is saying, it's no longer just me drill and kill with, you know, any given random question. Um, it's allowing them, it's, it's a free flow back and forth about the ideas. Yeah, free flow and discussion. So your experience in the classroom, uh, Algebra 1? Yeah, ta- yeah, ta- for the most part, ge- Algebra 1, Geometry. Geometry. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the maybe experiences that you've had? Or maybe some of the memories you have of classroom discussions in that high school setting, whether it's freshmen or sophomores in those content areas. Yeah, definitely. Um, going from freshman to sophomore, very, very different type of environment, right? Kids, kids grow, uh, and mentally they they are able to adapt to a more abstract type of thinking the older they get. 
So when I would take more them brain from, development. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's clear. It's definitely clear, especially in the type of class from algebra to geometry. And rather than diving too deep into those, um, I think geometry lended itself to more of a conversational based math. Mm-hmm. You know, because it there was a little bit more subjectivity to the type the of problem solving. Yes. Yeah. When you talk about proofs or how you prove different theorems. Um, it lends itself approach. to yes. being able to defend your work as opposed to an algebra setting where you're going to have more of a process-oriented uh, mm-hmm. problem-solving method. Yes, but because I taught both classes together, um, or, or I had both types of sections in the same year, I was able to take some of those thoughts from geometry and apply them to algebra. Transfer them, cool. Yeah, and so it wasn't full-on discussion like we'd like to have a one-on-one or a back-and-forth in our class, but it, it did allow me to change the approach rather than saying here are the steps you followed the steps and we're done it allowed students i could show we talked about the steps why the steps work and then they were able to take it and do it so if it, it could be something as simple as isolating a variable you know solving an equation for x and when they do it they have to be able to justify with rationale for each step as to what they're doing and why they're doing mm-hmm. it right or wrong answer it, it got them in the frame of thinking why am i doing what i'm doing and I have to have some basis for doing it because that would then take them to the steps of geometric proofs in geometry. So I was trying to, I was trying to bridge Defend, that type of thing. Defending thinking. their work. So on this step, the reason I did this was because. Yeah. And then moving on, I took this ne- next step for these reasons. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So them being able to describe it mathematically and, and provide that rationale. And then we got into the part where they would say it to each other mm-hmm. or talk about it. Um, you know, it was kind of my model of think, pair, share. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, we really tried to take that model and use it at different points in the year. Um, now, looking back, you know, being in my position now as curriculum specialist, I look and I go, man, I would have done things even even more different than what I did. But even adding that layer of where they have to talk through a process, and it's not just me giving them that information. Mm-hmm. You could tell that they did develop that deeper understanding. And I did that over the years. You know, I look back. Early to middle of my career, students and how I approached it, they did get that deeper level of understanding just by adding in those little nuances of how we approach questioning. Mm -hmm. So my experience with having classroom discussions as a middle school teacher Mm -hmm. kind of gets me a little bit nervous (laughs) and stressed out just thinking about it. When When you look at a middle school classroom... And you think about the things that are needed for a good group discussion. Yeah. You have a, you've got kind of like that little bit of an impasse there with two forces kind of working against each other. Um, <laughs> Freshmen aren't much different. <laughs> just bigger. Just bigger. Just bigger. Yeah. So the first thing, some teachers have used like different routines. If you want to have a discussion with an entire class of 25 um, or more children, First of all, to give someone, quote unquote, the floor. So maybe you have like a, some type of prop or something that you hand them. Okay, whoever's got this has the floor and everybody else needs to listen. And inevitably what happens is uh, some people are looking to duck and cover and hide because they want to avoid at any cost having to speak in front of any, anybody the, don't else. Don't make eye contact with yeah. the teacher. If the teacher doesn't see me, then I can just I can avoid this and I won't be put on the spot. So you've got that segment of the room. You've got the other segment of maybe a handful of kids who have tons of ideas and they feel that everybody wants to hear them nonstop and they want to <laughs> kind of dominate the conversation. So you've got that angle. 
And then the third part of it is you have a group of maybe kids that just really not are good natured, but have a really hard time sitting still. So for them to track and follow a conversation in an adult manner, point by point by point, you're putting them in a pretty tough spot and maybe not setting them up to be the most successful by trying to have a class discussion. Now, you know, I can think back over the years of things that we've tried to talk about. I rarely plan something that was discussion based just because it was so hard to predict how it was going to turn out. But sometimes we would have in certain groups, depending on like the chemistry of the students, the topic that we were discussing, there were times we would have really good discussions just because naturally a comment would come up, a question, an idea, and then other kids would kind of springboard ideas off of that and just organically the discussion would come up. And that was awesome. And so that was more unplanned mm-hmm. when you had the, the effective discussion come into class. Right. And you would try to think to yourself, how can I bottle this up and like kind of like put this into other, you know, lessons or topics or areas. And inevitably it would never work out the same because some of it just at the, at the, you know, foundation of it had to be kind of generated organically. And if you tried to force it, it just didn't really seem to work that well. So, you know, thinking about it from that standpoint, it kind of leads you to just because having like a traditional whole class discussion doesn't always, you know, work the way that we want it to, or it doesn't always go real smoothly it doesn't mean that we want to just gravitate away from that where the teacher does the majority of the communication one way Mm -hmm. and the students are just asking questions as they have them and we don't have any type of discussion. So, um, you know, that kind of leads us into the next thing that we wanted to look at is, you know, what really are the goals of having a class discussion? What type of goals do we want to accomplish by planning some type of discussion uh, venue? And then what would an effective discussion look like in a classroom? Well, and I think when we start looking at that from a teaching standpoint, saying that we're going to have a discussion and, and almost pre-planning that, we have to be very intentional. Um, we, we definitely want to put some structure to it, but I think sometimes where we kill it is we, we try and over-plan or over-manage a discussion. Mm-hmm. We try and, like you said, you almost want to force it into a situation like, this will be great. Well, it might be great for you, but for the students that don't have the background knowledge, uh, that are disinterested in or uninterested in in this content, it, it's very hard for them to come up with meaningful thought to go back and forth with somebody about. Um, you know, so really you, you, the goals, obviously we want to have high participation and engagement, but to do so, we, we really have to have something that the students can hook on to. Mm-hmm. I always think back to uh, what Mr. Anderson at McKinley says is we, they, kids have to have anchor points. Mm-hmm. They have to have something that everything that, that they're learning, they can connect to, that they can relate to. Something in their world that they can make sense of and and make a connection. Exactly, because then it makes it meaningful. You know, another thing that comes up at times is the idea of, in a discussion, we really also, with students, we want to have respectful interactions. Mm -hmm. And so, especially at the middle school level, there is a certain amount of teaching that has to go on there in terms of what's expected as far as if you want to share an idea, if someone else makes a point that you don't agree with, Uh, If you don't like the idea maybe that someone else has shared, how can you interact with them where you don't necessarily have to agree or be persuaded by what they're saying, but you do have to be respectful? And so, um, you know, that's there's a a certain element of teaching that goes into that, not just 
the content that we're going to be discussing, but how do you go about effectively discussing something without becoming disrespectful, maybe getting emotional over something that brings up a certain response? And you, I, I think about history curriculum, and there's a lot of topics oh, in yeah. there that can, that can really lend themselves to you know having some polarizing ideas and students on both sides of an issue. How can we discuss that in a way that doesn't end in uh, people being angry with each other and, and really not treating each other with the respect that we want to see? Heck, and that, that's an uphill battle. I mean, you look at the, that's a life skill that even in today's society, doesn't matter, you know, what you're adults. arguing. Yes, yeah. we see adults. When, when that's what the model is, it, we almost have to come back, bring it back a step, and teach our kids even how to engage in that respectful conversation. Mm-hmm. Kind of unlearn some of the things that it maybe have developed on a societal level. And oh, yeah. Take it back out of that and, and kind of discharge from that and look at how can we start kind of start fresh a little bit and build this back up to where we would want it to be. And, and not to deter anybody from <laughs> having discussion in their club. They think, holy crap, that's a lot that I don't want to unpack. But it's almost just creating those norms of when we're in class, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to do it. And and then by the teacher modeling and, and showing that respect in those conversations, it, you know, kids will, they'll tag along with that. Yeah. So what, like, what does effective discussion look like? What are some of the things we could expect to see if a discussion's going well in class? I, I think the, the biggest part is kids naturally or organically engaging in the content, um, having that sense of curiosity and lending, giving content that lends itself to that curiosity, mm-hmm. um, allowing students to ask any type of question. I, I learned this fairly early in my career that we always say, well, no question's a dumb question, but I know as a teacher, there was always some you never wanted to address. Mm-hmm. You're like, ah, I'm not touching it. But allowing the space for that to come up. Because for the most part, the kid asked that question because something triggered that question Mm -hmm. in the content. Mm -hmm. Now, if there were some that were inappropriate, I'm definitely going to deter away from Right. Like, okay, that's, you know, really though, in a conversation setting or like a discussion setting, it's, it's not that often that a student is just trying to be witty and just trying to maybe be a wise guy and ask mm-hmm. a question that's, that's totally trying to sabotage things. Usually, like as you said, there's at least some element of some kind of connection they've made or something mm-hmm. that they can connect to in the past that has caused them to have that thought and try to contribute something. Yeah. So. And even if they are a little witty, I was trying trying to do you know, a spin. Mm-hmm. on trying to bring it back to the content. And if there's some that really just <laughs> trump the mindset, I just, okay, we'll, we'll address that later. Throw it, you know, I would sometimes, the if, if there was someone that I could tell was really trying to derail the conversation, I would always say, well, I'm going to have some time after school, so check back with me then and we'll get into some discussion. And nobody ever took me up on that. I can't exactly figure Man, out why. All that but. time you're offering and nobody <laughs> takes advantage of it. You know, a couple other things that come into, you know, an effective discussion is how, how well can the students bring in their own ideas, but at the same time, use some of that content vocabulary and that content knowledge from whatever topic that it is that you're talking about. So if it's science, for example, and you're discussing an issue, whether it's maybe like an environmental issue or you're discussing maybe an issue that deals with energy and sometimes there's different viewpoints and controversies over like the use of energy, Um, there would be a good opportunity for students to not only have an original thought, but how can they use the topics that you've been working with and the terms you've been using in class to defend their thought as opposed to just having an emotional response to a, a discussion prompt and not really having anything to back it up with. So 
You know, the other thing, too, that I think is really the something that you, you'll see in an effective discussion would be when students are sharing and then without you necessarily intervening or guiding, other students have clarifying questions that just come up naturally. That would be, that to me would be another um, kind of an indicator that everybody's kind of plugged into what you're talking about, that the students are actually listening to what others are saying and yeah. that's triggering, triggering something in their mind. Hey, based on that, I have a question. What about this or what about that? Yeah. And then, you know, that, that, allows the teacher to step back from that and become the facilitator rather than you guiding know, it, guiding the conversation. Yep. Now, obviously I think because we are trying to create that environment, there will be times as a teacher, you may try and either redirect or um, pull them in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may ask guiding questions. I mean, we'll talk about this here in a minute, but you know, if I'm trying to facilitate a discussion and, and really encourage back and forth, I may act like a participant in that discussion as well. So they seem like I'm just as interested as everybody else. Rather, yeah. So I'm a part of it rather than the one leading it. Yeah. And in certain cases, I think when the students have a lot of good ideas to share, if there's a, if there's a topic or a discussion um, qu- question that really kind of pulls them in, the teacher's job almost becomes like an interviewer in an interview where you're just trying to keep everybody on point and keep things flowing in the right direction where you don't veer off too far one way or another where you get away from like the original um, topic that you're focusing on. Yeah. So, well, let me ask you this question. So if you're looking at instructional strategies, you're trying to guide some discussion, what are some things that you can use to try to keep students on point? Because you want good discussion, but you don't want it to veer off too far where they're not focused on the topic that you're trying to get them to think about. What are some strategies you might use? Well, there's, there's two fairly simple ones that come to mind. And I say simple just because they can be plugged into really any content at any given time. Um, one of them comes from our, uh, it's mathematical modeling and reasoning, or we call it quantitative reasoning. It's a, it's a pilot course for the state of Ohio. Here in our district, we, we are a pilot site, and they actually use question stems. So while it's a math class, it does real-life application. It, it, a very explorative type course, but part of it is training students to use these question stems. So not only is the teacher using and modeling these question stems, it also has the students, when they ask a question, they start with one of these stems. Mm-hmm. And so there are four basic ones that it starts with. Why do you say? What do you mean by? Tell me more about, and how do you see? And it almost comes from practice. I've watched the progression of of our students in some of these courses, and at the beginning, most students, even by junior and senior level, have no idea what it means to have a conversation in class about class. Mm -hmm. And so by training the students to say, okay, if we want to ask a question, let's just start with these stems. And so if if a teacher presents content, We'll fill out all four questions together and then talk about it. Just to model them through the process. I'm modeling, and then we're also having the discussion with those questions. As you model. So that way, you know, we're building the capacity in the students to, to think, and I'm also showing them how to get through it. The other piece um, is, is actually came from our work with Reading Ways through our CLSD grant, And these are sentence starters. Now, I know a lot of people have talked about sentence starters. A lot of teachers use them. um, But they have helped a lot of our cohorts with this because they've modeled it for all different types of contents. You've got your social studies, science, math, ELA. Mm -hmm. They even go into music, art. 
Um, but some of your sentence starters like if and then. If, then, because. I wonder. I think. What if? And, and, and there's spaces and trying to guide students into their thinking to build, once again, that capacity on how do I start to present information in a sentence format. Uh huh. So in the middle school science setting, I can speak to this a little bit, that one of the skills that some seventh graders would have a hard time getting started with, if we were doing inquiry-based science and they were working on a lab report where they had to generate a hypothesis, Mm -hmm. uh, being able to generate a hypothesis that has evidence for why they expect something to happen, if then is a really nice format to put that in. So uh, if a certain condition is present, then here's what I think is going to happen. And so Typically, I would use that starter at the beginning of an inquiry-based activity to get them started on, on a hypothesis, but then to grow it out once they started to master that skill, then you would add if then with a because after it, because what that would do, they would look at uh, if this uh, certain condition is present, then I expect this to happen, and the because then has them develop a little bit further why they would expect that to happen, what thoughts do they have. And by having just those three terms, it kind of helps them to frame a hypothesis and not get too far off base one way or the other or have a hard time getting started. See, I'm, I'm thinking, man, if this was only streamlined a little bit better, we did that in geometry as well. You know, our conditional statements of if, then, if P, then Q, and then you'd go through all of the different types of conditionals. But it's getting students to think in more of a conceptual way of cause and effect, yep. but really, you know, in a proof format. So mathematically, science-based, mm-hmm. and then, you know, our English-based. Mm-hmm. You know, th- those could be all applied to really any content. Oh, for sure, and especially the other starters like I wonder or I think. I wonder to me is an interesting one because any content you use that in, think about like characters in a novel and you're trying to get the student to think about why a character might have acted in a certain way or feels a certain way. And the I wonder causes them to actually think a little bit deeper and then share some of their thoughts of what are some, like based on what you see, what is that, what kind of thoughts does that generate? What does that make you wonder or think about, you know, whether it be a character in a book, whether it be like a historical figure, if you're in a history setting, there's a lot of different ways those starters can go. And so these are, these are, student-centered. And, and what I mean by that is at no point through these should a teacher be coming in and telling what is right or wrong because of these. Right. And, and I think that that's where a lot of our students have sheltered themselves from having a discussion in classes mm-hmm. because they feel Looking like for the right answer. it's got to be scripted. Yep. It's got to be it directly in line with what the teacher wants. So sometimes it, well, at the start of these, it becomes very candid on mm-hmm. here's the... Um, what the teacher wants type of response. Right. Now, when I look at that from a science standpoint, think about like writing a hypothesis. There really is no right or wrong hypothesis. All I was looking for from the student is basically, did you follow the format of developing it, give the condition, then what you expect is going to happen. And the only thing that we would talk about with a hypothesis, it has to be logical. Yeah. As long as it's a logical outcome that could potentially happen. That's a great point at the beginning of a lab for discussion. When we look at kind of the setup of an activity or an experiment, having students discuss and share what they expect to happen in their hypotheses, that's a great opportunity for discussion. Yeah. And once again, I bring it right back to geometry. We used conjectures, but the same thing. They had to come up with a conjecture based on a pattern mathematically and then justify it based on why they made the conjecture they did. Mm Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, um, Chad, you know, I really want to dive into your realm a little bit more on some of these tech tools. 
Uh, you know, we, we talk about discussion. Obviously, having a discussion in class is important, but what are some tools that we can use that can help facilitate this or provide different opportunities than just like you said, pass the stick around, the one with the stick, you know, has, has free reign of the room, but really that we have shown that that's not effective and that deters not only teachers from doing this, but students from engaging in it. So, you know, I like you to kind of guide us through some of tech resources that would allow for more open classroom discussion. Absolutely. We definitely looked at a lot of issues that can be deterrents to having just, as you said, like a formal type discussion in the room. But that's where I think these tech tools are helpful because at the end of it, what you're really trying to do is get the students to think about and share their ideas. Mm -hmm. And even if you're in a setting where they're going to have a hard time verbalizing them and sharing them back and forth that way, some of these tech tools can be great for getting students to engage, getting students to share their ideas, and not only that, but even actually improving on a conversation or a discussion in class that's just verbal by kind of archiving some of those ideas where then you can later work with them, organize them, do something with them. So let's start by talking about Jamboard. You know, Google offers Jamboard, which more or less is just a blank canvas, and then you have the ability to add information to that. You can add information in terms of text. You can attach links or documents. You can add uh, using different pens where you can write on there. But what really I think is helpful with Jamboard, um, first of all, being that it's part of the Google Workspace, you can add collaborators. So right away, if you want to have some type of group interaction sharing ideas, you can either do that in a bigger setting like a class or a smaller setting like groups. And with Jamboard, I found with especially younger kids, the bigger group that you try to have, it becomes kind of chaotic if they're all trying to add their thoughts onto one board at a time. Space is a little limited. Space is limited, plus you get a little bit of, um, you know, just the goofing off that comes along with trying to delete someone else's post that they put on there. and you know, everybody that, has free reign. Everybody has editing rights, so yeah, that becomes kind of problematic. But if I were going to adjust Jamboard a little bit to say, what can we do to make it really effective? Number one, I would say, let's instead of just using a blank white space and we're going to put little sticky notes on there with ideas, what if we start with putting a background on it? Because we can use from a Google slide or wherever else it might be, we can create the template for our discussion mm -hmm. and then have the editors that get onto that particular document take their post-it notes and sort those out. So if you do that where you've narrowed it down, where let's say maybe you have a group of four, they, you have a chart that you want them to discuss some information, you put that as the background of your, of your Jamboard. And then from there, the students can add post-it notes, not only put their idea on the post-it notes, but then organize it on the template to fit wherever it might go. And if you do it that way, uh, it really doesn't take that long to set it up. In a typical class, let's say that I have 24 students, Basically, all I need to do is if I have that copy of that Jamboard with the template background, I just need to make six copies. And in most school settings, your directory, you could add those students as editors onto that for your groups if you've organized them in advance. You can do it really quickly. Now, I know some teachers really don't like to spend that kind of time setting it up. But if I make those six copies, put them in a folder for my first period and add those collaborators to each one, 
it becomes pretty straightforward as far as getting everybody plugged into the right one. And then what I can even do, because I'm the owner of each Jamboard that I'm sharing with the students to collaborate on, it becomes really easy for me. If I want to share ideas from group one or group two, mm-hmm. I can start putting that up on the screen and from my own device, skip from board to board, showing each of the group's ideas. And then you can have conversation around each of the groups. Exactly right. So to me, it always when you use these type of tools, a little bit of extra setup time at the beginning is going to go a long way to helping you have a more effective discussion. And as you said, like when we're looking at, uh, let's say we put group A's information up there, that may spur just then some organic discussion from the other groups who view that mm-hmm. up front. And so you're starting at a smaller level and then you're expanding it out in a way that kind of just keeps things a little more organized, a little more like under wraps, I guess you'd say, than just opening it up to everybody. Yeah, and I'm even thinking, you know, you talk about a little bit more time in the preparation, um, but how much more time would I be taking to make copies of something or create maybe an activity that isn't as conducive to open discussion mm-hmm. as this one? So, I mean, there could be a trade-off in time mm-hmm. where, it, where it may not be a waste or it may not be that much extra time in order to do so. I don't consider it a waste. It's just a little bit more on the, on the front end. Yeah. But then think about the advantage on the back end, too. Every discussion is archived. I mean, if you have one group that puts phenomenal ideas on there, you've got that digital file with access to it because you're the owner. And then you can even use that as an exemplar, share that with other classes. Yeah. And think about if you were doing that in more of an analog way. Uh, when I say analog, you know, like a non-tech way where you have post-it notes and like anchor charts around the room. Yeah. And, you know, you can certainly, that's a, that's a, there's a, t- I think a good, still a good time to use that because of the kinesthetics and getting kids Get up, up and, and moving, moving. Yep. you know, but you're still in some way, if you want to archive that, you're going to need a digital medium of some type, whether you take a photo of it or, yeah. because otherwise, you know, it's, it's not quite Although I guess you could save some of those anchor charts and put them around the room, but it just, to me, in a digital space, it becomes really easy to organize all that and to save that kind of stuff. Well, I think back to class when I would have students write down. We, we did two things to start the year. We'd have them write goals, and we'd have them um, put their thoughts on dimensions, mm-hmm. the geometry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we'd have a discussion about it, okay? That way we could see how aligned our goals were to what our classroom goal was. I'm like, heck, Jamboard would have been a great way to do that. Yeah. And then I could have, it would have been easier than me trying to keep all the notebook papers to then give it back at the end of the year. It could have all been saved and we could have brought it back up, Mm -hmm. had the discussion and a better reflection. Right. The only other thing I'd say about Jamboard, just as a caveat, is you do have to be a little bit careful just in terms of um, who's putting what. If you have several of them going on at once, who's putting what on the Jamboard in terms of like the appropriateness of their comments. Right. However... The one thing that you do have, as opposed to trying to, like, I guess, motivate by putting the fear in kids that, like, I'm going to be watching every move you make and you better not put something inappropriate, I would rather have them know that I do have the opportunity to look at the editing history. So nothing that you do digitally is going to be anonymous, whether you want it to be or not. And I'd rather have them make the right choice on their own not to put anything inappropriate on there than just because I'm staring at their screen or I'm watching them on my device. Right. Now, if we move on, another platform that I think is awesome for discussion, and it gives a lot of different ways to do that, is Nearpod. So Nearpod, if you're not familiar with that platform, it's a really interactive platform that allows the teacher to create a lesson, the students to plug in on their device where everybody's connected together, and then the teacher can set up any number of activities in a slide-by-slide basis. So Nearpod has four different things that I think are great for discussion. 
One, you can set up a slide that has a poll question. And after everybody responds, you can actually, as the teacher, monitor each person's response as it comes in who hasn't responded yet. And then once everybody's responded, you can show the results, which can be a springboard to a great discussion by getting real-time information on how does everybody in this room feel about a certain topic. So the students have to log in then to Nearpod in order to do so. It, yes. And so the teacher would actually launch the lesson online. And then the students would have a join code. They would put that in. That would They would put in their, their name. They would put in that join code, and they would then be part of that teacher's lesson. And it really is great not only for the discussion side, but it's really nice for management too. So another type of slide besides those poll questions, you have the ability to put an open-ended question in there where you can ask, like we talked about with our sentence starters, you can put, or um, question starters, you can put an open-ended question the students respond to it, once the responses come in, you can then display individual responses. So it works out really nicely that as you, as a teacher on your device, look through the responses that have come in, you can display that on each student's screen at the same time. So it's a really good way to start to like take ideas that came from students yeah. and then easily share them out. My experience has been the advantage of doing it this way is that a student who might not be willing to raise their hand or grab the stick and speak in front of the class would be much more willing to still share the ideas that they have and, and put them through in this format where they don't have to stand up and say something or raise their hand and say something. Thirdly, another thing that Nearpod does, if we think about another way that you can share ideas and discuss, they have open drawing boards. So let's say, for example, I'm just thinking in a science setting or maybe even in a math setting. If you have a question that you want them to discuss and share ideas, it might not be a verbal response as much as create a diagram that explains a certain topic. Or in a science idea, like if you had to create a prototype, what might it look like? And then sketch it out and give some of the parts to it. So you're, you're tapping into a different modality by asking them to sketch. And then you can still generate some of that good conversation from it. Because just like with the open-ended responses, I can, from my teacher um, interface where I'm controlling the lesson, I can take a really good response and I can display it on every single kid's device so everyone sees it simultaneously. And it sounds like between just those three alone, you have the ability to meet the different needs of different disciplines. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's completely con content agnostic. Like there's no there's no like specific content that it's going to be most geared towards. You can, it, it's a, an empty space where you're creating opportunities for learning. Yeah. And I love, the, I love the idea of, um, the drawing, like you said, more with your sciences, when you focus on maybe the analyzing of different images or them having to create something from a prompt and allowing them to almost provide feedback to each other uh -huh. from that, allowing uh -huh. discussion on what they created. Uh -huh. um, Think about this in a history setting. So uh, you've seen those images before, like time puts out like from real world, like events that have happened, like these like really like dramatic images of people in different circumstances and situations. So right. I'm just thinking like a history class. Imagine like you just put an image on the screen with drawing tools and just say, circle and make some notes on things that stand out to you and then what you think might be happening and the type of discussion that could be generated from mm, that. Yeah. Um, really just like a way that you could in like a history setting, pull kids in, give them a hook and then generate an, a, a discussion over something that's intriguing that they really don't know exactly what's happening. Like I was even thinking add a caption. Yeah. Yeah. You could even like make your own cartoon or add a caption. Exactly. 
Um, and one last thing that Nearpod has that I think is really phenomenal is what's called a collaborate board. So a collaborate board, you can give it a couple different backgrounds, but more or less what it is, it's a space where students can put um, little posts on there. And the post might include an image, might include a web link, might include a comment, but it also has their name with it. Oh, okay. And so it shows up. It's a little bit, to me, it's a little bit more organized than Jamboard. The other thing, especially if you are looking at your audience and you need a little bit more control, is that as a teacher, I can set it up to approve the posts that come through. So I get to see them first. Nice. And it doesn't just mean inappropriate, but if it's somebody who's trying to hijack the, the discussion with mm -hmm. like memes or silly stuff, you can say, okay, this is getting a little too far off the rails and then, uh, you know, cancel that so it doesn't post. Nice. And I always told the students too, listen, I'm not such a schmuck that I don't want to laugh. I want to laugh, but you just have to be funny and be witty enough to make it relate to what we're doing. Right. It can't be so far out there that you know only you and your buddies get it, and it has nothing to do with what, what we're talking about. Just be creative enough. If you can make some funny comments that relate to what we're doing and you're clever and witty about it, that makes the class a lot better. I'm not trying to squash that. Right. I'm just trying to keep us from going off the rails. <laughs> so That's a nice feature, especially when you talk about the Jamboard needing almost um, – a manager to keep things cleaned up as you're going through it. Right. This almost is built in without you needing to organize it as much. Yep. Now, another site that's very similar to that, uh, that can do some similar things is Padlet. Padlet allows you to create a board and then have, as you connect students to that board, they can uh, post and they can put a comment, they can post images, they can post web images, links, they can also like other people's posts, add audio recordings. So it does a lot of the same things as Nearpod's Collaborate Board. But the one thing about Padlet that I struggled with not having a premium subscription is they only allow you up to three boards hmm. to total, three boards without having to delete one and create a new one. Right, if I teach six classes, that's a problem. So um, it, it does have a wide variety of features. It's a great way to archive ideas, almost like creating a bulletin board. Um, but for my money, I look at Nearpod and, you know, Nearpod on the silver version, the free version, you basically get a library of a hundred megabytes. So I would probably lean a little bit more toward Nearpod in that regard. Padlet, if I had a premium subscription, uh, that would change things a little bit in that way. But I, I mean, to extend on the Padlet, Mike, I have more experience with Padlet than I do Nearpod. I really liked, um, almost the social media-esque type of approach have that feel, yep. Uh, students... And, and, I, and I've seen Nearpod, I've worked with Nearpod a little bit. I think it's just as engaging as Padlet. I think students innately have um, a better understanding of Padlet because of the social media approach. Mm -hmm. um, and if I'm thinking bigger scale discussion, so you say six classes, but if I'm talking conceptually about one idea, I can invite all classes to come into that Padlet That's true. to provide thoughts. And if you're running one at a time. Yes. Um, obviously, three boards... Uh, you, you know, you're, you're very restricted there unless you're going to wipe out. Your archiving isn't going to be there. No. but Which is hard as a teacher. You yeah. want to keep the record of that work that you're doing and not have to keep wiping it out. Which is, and reference back to it. Which is part of the idea behind the subscription. Obviously, yeah. these companies are, are, you know, they're not They're there to make money. Yeah, and, <laughs> and rightfully so. I mean, the cost of development and everything that goes into it. Yeah. Uh, you just have to, you know, as we've talked about before on the show, there's so many great resources out there. You really just have to find which ones fit best for what you're trying to do. And there's not an unlimited amount of dollars for all the subscriptions that you can have, which ones you're going to choose to go ahead right. and keep a staple few and, and keep working with those. Right. Um, 
So moving on, another thing too that I think is really great when it comes to um, discussion and collaborating in a digital space, if we look at Google Docs or Google Slides, you can definitely open up a document and have multiple contributors where you can get some sharing of ideas going that way. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I really like, at times it can become problematic when you have too many editors. I mean, we've faced that in meetings with adults before when you're trying to click in an open space and someone else's cursor is there and fonts popping up and you're messing up each other's typing. Right. It can be, it can be difficult. But what I think is a great way to put together a discussion-based activity in a Google Doc is if you have the text already on the screen and you set this, instead of putting the settings to everybody can edit, Mm -hmm. you set it to everybody can comment. And then, depending on different areas, all the student has to do is select a, a word or a sentence, and then they can put their own comment in there with their name attached to it. And now you've kind of within the Google Workspace ecosystem, you've created a discussion tool using commenting there. And as you mentioned before, the archiving part of that, that document, if you have just the one document with lots of comments on it, you know, the feature that's built in where you can use uh, tags to then tag other people in your comments. And then that, you know, notifies them that they've been tagged and asks them to respond. If you're talking about a digital form of communication, you can really get pretty deep with that. Yeah. And I'm thinking even in the comments, you could have an ongoing discussion within those. Right. You know, like you said, different sidetracks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not I'm not typing and then addressing individual people in the typing. Mm -hmm. It can be driven off to each individual question or comment and and you can have a discussion there. Um, But I do want to highlight that, you know, there was a teacher we've worked with, Mr. Anderson, once again, and we, we brought this up in one of our previous episodes. Um, his idea of the stew pot, and that's where we really started this conversation. And I really like the idea of commenting. And I know he did a little bit, but he opened up a doc to everybody and made it, um, if it's viewable by everybody, then they come in as anonymous. And mm-hmm. so allowing that opportunity for students to come in without putting their name on something. So he sets it up, anyone with the link can edit? Yes, but only shares the link to his class. So that way they can come in. They come in as anonymous editors. Right. And that way they don't have to um, put their name with it. They're more open to... Takes a little bit of the pressure off. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to worry about being criticized for your idea and that type of thing. Especially when it's content-based. No Mm -hmm. student wants to come in thinking or seeming like they don't know something. Right. So allowing them to just free think and and put... And then they can go in and comment on each other on what they think. If I agree, I like this, I don't like this. Um, He's also had systems where you put a check or an X. But establishing those norms with the students ahead of time on this is how we respond to each other. Yeah. But that was a simple way, you know. Simple, but it's a nice way to get students discussing and sharing ideas. Talked with a few teachers last year, really pointed them to that. And they said, oh, I never thought about just using a doc. And you can leave it up on the board Mm -hmm. where students can see it as they're responding. So it, it just, it was a quick and easy way rather than having to navigate through maybe a new app. Yeah. Yeah, and that's definitely true that Google Google Docs have become kind of a centerpiece of what teachers do in their workflow. And by this point, most students are pretty comfortable with Google Docs and Google Slides as well. Right. So that just takes us to one last tool. And at one point it was Flipgrid, and now it's been shortened to just Flip. Too long. Too much to say Flipgrid. <laughs> I, do, I do like this tool, though. When it comes to Flip, the idea of students being able to respond and converse in a video response is a pretty cool concept. Yes. And one of the things that I love about Flip 
is that it is completely free and has been advertised as it's free and always will be, which is a nice tool in the crowded space of technology integration. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about, is this one more subscription that we need to purchase or is it going to make the cut? It's going to be free. And so the idea that you can have students actually make their response in a video and then they have a full range of editing tools where they can put all the things to be creative with stickers, with um, filters on the screen. That's a really nice feature. And what's really great about it in terms of discussion is if you set it up in a grid, all the student responses are auto automatically categorized into one grid where students can go through and watch multiple and then respond to them. Yeah. So to me, I mean, you think about the idea of organization. I can do a lot of those things in the Google workspace, but then as the teacher, I have to organize that content. Where Flipgrid, everything's going to be organized for you based on how I set up the grid. And once I share that link with students and they start responding, all that's put together where I can easily share it with others. I can make my grid public for others to view. I can make sure that students have access to it where they can watch it. Just like we talked about with some of the others, they can like different people's videos. And then that gives it kind of that social media feel of, of getting that affirmation of people liking your oh, post. Oh, yeah, definitely interactive in that regard. And that's a huge motivator for kids to see how many people they can get to hit the little heart there and, and like their post. I've seen, I've actually had a few kids who just kept repeatedly opening their own video to artificially pump up their, <laughs> pump views. up their like numbers and their views. Yeah. Uh, another thing about Flipgrid that I think is really convenient for teachers is that it's really easy to integrate the assignment into Google Classroom so that the f student can follow uh, an assignment post in Classroom, right to Flipgrid, sign in with their Google account, make their post. That's a, a nice thing. And then you've got a variety of different sharing settings there to determine, hey, do you want to keep this just closed just to your class? Do you want to open it up where other classes can see it or even beyond that? Uh, and even being able to monitor what the students are posting yeah. as well was a big thing. Yeah. Um, I used Flip when uh, we were virtual for a while, did uh -huh. it for a couple projects and allowing students to uh, kind of be creative, feel like they were still in a classroom setting, getting to see their classmates that really they weren't able to see at all. Um, because at the time, we weren't really doing meets. We knew that kids were working at all different times of the day, whatever it may yep. be. Uh, Flip allowed us to kind of have that face-to-name connection and allow them to still have their individuality while still engaging with content. Two things that, that made me think about, as you were mentioning that time period, First thing is that if a student is really, really shy, what I had some middle school kids do, I still want to hear your voice, mm -hmm. but if you don't really want to appear on camera, put a picture up. They would they would either put a picture up or some of them would use some of those stickers and put like an emoji over oh, their face nice. or things like that. And to me, I'm like, hey, that's great. You're still sharing your idea. I don't want to make you feel super uncomfortable. Not everybody is excited about getting in front of the camera. I mean, some kids loved it. They ate it up like oh, the chance yeah. to perform. But <laughs> other kids, that's just not their personality. Right. And so if you want to do it in a way that you don't appear on camera, I'm 100% fine with that. And another thing you mentioned about like the content itself, their filter on Flip is really pretty sensitive where if kid puts anything inappropriate, it's going to flag it. Yep. And then it's, it's not going to post it to the grid, which is awesome. And some of them that were flagged, I would go back and watch them. And I didn't see anything that Usually it wasn't something that was really egregious. So yeah. it's pretty sensitive where you're very unlikely to have something inappropriate slip through and end up out there on the web. Which is good. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what we're, good Exactly what we're looking for. I'd rather for. have to go through and rewatch multiple videos to make sure it's good to go. Than 100%. Everybody push everything out. So. Yep. 
So this brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, Hopefully you found some ideas that are helpful to you that you might be able to use when facilitating discussions within the classroom. And maybe at the very least, just to cause you to rethink a little bit about how you try to use classroom discussion and how you integrate that into the learning process in your classroom. Make sure that you check out the description for links to any of the resources that we've discussed in this podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and write us a review. You can find previous episodes of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.